Now, I know that our mind never works this way intentionally, but it's happened a few times throughout history where an argument over something small like a ham sandwich, we never intend that an argument over a ham sandwich would lead to a homicide, right? We don't go from low quality meat to I'm going to murder another person. But I want to tell you, our decisions determine directions that we go. And many times through history, and you've heard of famous feuds like the Hatfields and the McCoys before. One of the things that reignited their feud was there was a hog discrepancy. One of the Hatfields said, that hog is my hog. And the the McCoy said, no, my hog swim across the river and it's on your land, but I want my hog back. And it led to one of them going to the other's house in the middle of the night and shooting at women and children through the walls of the house and lighting it on fire on a cold winter night. And it's like this was a dispute over a hog that has escalated in all kinds of death and violence. How did we get here? Because little decisions determine direction. In today's message, we're on a series that's, that's trying to give us perspective of what God did from the very beginning of Adam and Eve in the garden and the story of redemption that he's writing all across time to the very end, to the book of Revelation, where it describes the end of days and the new heaven and the new earth. And we're here at this point where we've seen God's incredible hand in creation, his tremendous love uh, of leading Israel out of captivity and giving them a promised land. And now they've been established in this promised land and they were given a king who had supreme wisdom. Solomon was incredibly wise and he used it to amass wealth and respect and he built a kingdom, but he didn't finish well. I'd say that he, it's not just that he didn't finish well, but even his eyes of what he set to build a kingdom like and how he built his kingdom and how he used his wisdom, he established a kingdom that would crumble just after his death. And that's where we're at today. We're looking at the situation that happened as Solomon's son is attempting to take reign over the kingdom. And immediately we're, we're faced with what Solomon's legacy was to the people that were his subjects. We're going to put this passage up on the screen from 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 4. And this is some of the people of Israel coming to Rehoboam who would be king, who is expected to be king over Israel and Judah. And this is what they had to say to him about his father. Your father was a hard master, they said. Lighten the harsh labor demands and the heavy taxes that your father imposed on us. Then we will be your loyal subjects. Now, listen, a lot of years will pass by, but it doesn't seem like governments and people change all that much. Taxes are too much. The work is too hard. We need to scale it back to what it used to be. And so these are the complaints that are, that are brought to this young king. And I want to first start with just a little bit of perspective about Solomon. He had incredible wisdom, but what did he use his wisdom to do? He had great wealth. How did he acquire the wealth? In my mind, I just felt like he was so wise. He probably just made incredible business deals. And that's how he acquired such great wealth. But we're told that at least part of the picture of how he acquired it is he was very heavy handed with his people. So much so that one of the first conversations after his passing to the new king was like, we have to scale this back. 
This is not sustainable. And I want to tell you, the kingdom that Solomon built, it could not save his life. No amount of wealth, no amount of respect. There's a certain point, no matter who you are, where you find yourself on your deathbed and you will surely contemplate, what is it that I have done that will continue forward? In our lifetime, one of the people that is probably the most comparable to Solomon because of great wisdom and insight was Steve Jobs. He changed the computer world and then he also changed our world because most of us hold in our pocket a connection to the internet that consumes our mind for six to eight hours of every single day. Like him or not, Steve Jobs changed our world and he amassed an obscene amount of wealth in the same way that Solomon did. But much to probably all of our surprise, we would have thought with the amount of wealth that he had, there's no way he should have died that young. And all of us will reach a point in our life and probably before our deathbed where we begin to recognize what matters most in our life is not what we have built with our hands. It's not the amount of money in our checking account. What matters most in our life is who is it that's holding our hand as our days begin to dwindle? Who is it that we've invested in and poured ourselves in? That's what's really going to matter as we reach the end of our life. That's what's really going to matter in the kingdom of God. Who have we poured ourselves into? Not what we have acquired because everything that we acquire will eventually pass into the hands of someone else. It wasn't long after Solomon's passing that, that the wealth that he had built up in the treasure rooms of Israel were carried off to Egypt. It wasn't long after his passing that the kingdom began divided between two different kings and that the nation was fractured. The things that he built, built quickly began to fall apart. And so today's message, I really want you to begin to see that, that developing people has a greater impact than acquiring things. And if you are to replay your calendar for your week behind you or think about your calendar in the week ahead of you, how much of your life right now is dedicated to the relationships that you would say matter most? How much are we investing in the things that we say, this is what is really important in my life? Because far too often, our calendar and the way that we use our resources and time do not reflect what we would say truly matters. I think one of the, the best contrasts that you can make between two people who spent their life building a kingdom, you look at Solomon, who had incredible wisdom, and he built a powerful nation, a powerful kingdom with great wealth, great respect, but as he died, it began to crumble. And you can look at all of the great things that he built in his palace and in the temple of God, and that's one case study. And then you look at the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus did not fill any treasure rooms on earth. Jesus did not build any great structures where people went to worship. But Jesus was also building a kingdom. But what did he do? He didn't acquire things. He poured himself into 12 people. Solomon had reign over 12 tribes. But Jesus had 12 disciples that he poured himself into. And Jesus' kingdom continues to grow to this day. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church that Jesus established. And Jesus did it without acquiring wealth without acquiring the status of a political control. But he poured love and truth 
and to 12 men who have changed this world. And in the same way, if you invest yourself into the people that God has given you, what you leave behind you will be more powerful than anything that you could acquire. Solomon, he has had wisdom, but in the end of his life, he, he, he listened less and less to the God who spoke to him, to the God who gave him this clear wisdom. And so Solomon took more and more wives that were from outside of the kingdom, began to follow pagan gods. And as his life ended, the way that he was living began, begins to, I believe, be apparent in his son, Rehoboam. Because Rehoboam, who is to take the throne, he begins to get this feedback from the people of the nation. They say, we need to bring the taxes down. We need to bring the forced labor down. And in 1 Kings 12, 7, we'll put this up on the screen. It says, the older counselors replied, and they're speaking to Rehoboam, the future, the soon to be king, the one who should rule over the nation. He said, if you're willing to be a servant to these people today and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your loyal subjects. All right, so he gets one set of instruction from older people, older counselors, people who have seen nations rise and fall, people who, who've gone through their life. They know what they're talking about. He gets one answer from them. But just like you, when you Google search for an answer and the first 10 results aren't what you want, you flip to the second page because you don't really want instruction from someone else. You want to find the answer that agrees with what you already thought in your head. And you've seen this, you've done this, you've been annoyed by this in other people in their lives. Jeroboam does what we've all done and experienced and what we hate. He goes to some younger people in verse nine and he says, what is your advice? He asked them. How should I answer these people who want me to lighten the burdens imposed by my father? And the young men replied, this is what you should tell the complainers who want a lighter burden. My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. That means I have a lot more weight to put on you people. Yes, my father laid heavy burdens on you, but I'm going to make them even heavier. My father beat you with whips, but I will beat you with scorpions. Younger people's advice lacks seasoned experience and sometimes it doesn't even make sense when they say it. Just so you know what they meant by scorpions, what's believed is that that, that was the term for when they would put shards of iron into the whip, much like the way that Jesus was scourged by the Romans. So that he was saying, I won't just whip you with a whip, but I'm gonna whip you with a whip that will tear the flesh off of your back. You think it was bad under my dad. I'm even bigger and badder and stronger than my dad. So you better watch out and stay out of my way. I, before I was in ministry as a church planter and lead pastor, I spent close to, to 15 years in youth ministry. And very quickly in youth ministry, and I apologize, it's not the kindest of terms, but it was a term that I began using right at the beginning with parents and with students to try to help them see this. That there's this tendency for teenagers to get advice from a council that I refer to as the council of idiots. Now, teenagers, stick with me, just hear me. If you were to need heart surgery, 
you know you wouldn't run down the lockers of your middle school and high school and find someone and be like, hey, have you ever heard of heart surgery? Yeah, I saw it on TV one time. Okay, great, cut me open and let me put my life in your hands. No, you would be like, I want someone who's done it before, who's studied it, who has an actual degree, actual experience. They know what they're doing. They've had great results. They've walked through this a thousand times and they know what they're doing. That's what you would want if someone's heart was in your hands, teenager. So why is it that when you need advice, you go to a group thread of kids who have never seen it, never done it, never experienced it before? and you put your heart in their hands. When you have adults in your life who love you and have actually seen it and actually have done it before. It's a foolish thing when you stop and look at it, but there's the tendency of, well, I don't like the first page of Google results. I wanna find someone who's gonna tell me what I wanna do already. And the sooner that you recognize that that's foolishness and the sooner that you recognize that you have adults in your life who have been there and they know what they're talking about and they have your best intentions at hand, the sooner you start listening to those voices, the better your life is gonna be. And adults in the same way, you need to look at where you're getting wisdom from in your life. Are, are you looking at people who they don't care about what the word of God has to say and you're trusting just worldly business advice and you're cutting corners that you know that you shouldn't cut? If you're, if you're trusting a council of idiots to advise you, you need to turn back to the word of God because you know if you do it the world's way, you're gonna get to the end of your days and you're gonna see a kingdom that crumbles as you fall. And God intends to have a legacy of blessing that flows from you into the lives around you. And every decision that you make sets a direction for your life. And so Solomon, he began to set this direction for Rehoboam. And we're gonna look at two different kings today. We're gonna look at Rehoboam and, and Asa. And one of them is an example of what not to do. It's very plausible for you to look at someone's life and say, I learned a lot from you because you did all the stupid things. And so I'm gonna look at your life and I'm gonna do the opposite and I'm gonna be wiser from it. It's possible to learn from those things. And to also look at examples of people who chose well and follow, and follow the example of what they did. The first thing we learn from, because you know what? When Rehoboam heard the scorpion advice, he was like, that sounds tough. That sounds right. That sounds strong. That's what I'm gonna do. And so what happened? All but one of the tribes said, forget you. You will never reign over us. This was the beginning of the major division that would occur when we read the New Testament and we hear about Samaritans who were called half-breed and hated. This was that major division point that began to happen that would lead, later lead to them being defeated and carried off to other nations that we'll see a few chapters down the road. But it happened because one person wouldn't seek wise counsel. And so three things we're gonna learn from Rehoboam. Number one, seek wise counsel in your life. Not just counsel, not just what you want to hear, but seek wise counsel. Number two, serve others. As a leader, his intention shouldn't be, how tough can I look? How strong can I be? How, how much can I make the people fear me? That was the wrong reaction to the times. He should, should have listened because just showing mercy in this one point would have given him followers for the rest of his life. But instead, he had to show off. He had to be strong. He had to be bad. And what he ended up with was losing all but one of the tribes. We should be leaders who serve other people. You guys, 
Craig Rochelle talks about the difference between a boss and a leader. And this is going to resonate with you guys because you've experienced this before. A boss instills fear, but a leader inspires confidence. A boss assigns blame, a leader takes responsibility. A boss demands loyalty, and a leader extends trust. A boss controls people, and a leader empowers people. A boss is often guarded, but a leader is transparent. And you will never be a leader that others love to follow if you aren't a leader that loves people. I believe that God has placed every single person in here in a position of influence, which is a position of leadership. And the way that you lead people matters in the kingdom of God. We have opportunities that are fleeting to influence people in the right way. And we have to choose to serve others and not serve ourselves. The third thing that we, we learn from Rehoboam's mistakes is we need to learn from our mistakes because he was given uh, basically another chance. He, he went out with his person um, that he had assigned the responsibility of enforcing his laws and the Israelites literally put him to death and Rehoboam escaped and he should have looked at this and said, this plan is not working. I need to change the way I'm, I'm leading. I need to change the way that I'm treating people. But he just continued on in that path. Learning from, from mistakes, that's one of the things that separates the proverbial godly man or wise man from the proverbial fool. It's not making mistakes, but it's learning from mistakes that makes the difference. I want to show you guys Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16, because th this is so helpful. Um, and we can put this up on the screen. It says, the godly may trip seven times, but they will get up again. But one disaster is enough to overthrow the wicked. Now, I want to make sure you catch the implication right there because there's a perception across our culture that Christians think they're perfect, that Christians have to be perfect. And this even kind of sneaks into our heart and mind because we try to not let any of our mistakes ever show. We never want to be the person who stumbled. We never want to be the person who messed up, lest it discredit our faith and the way that other people see us. And I want to tell you, the way that scripture describes a godly person as someone who has messed up a lot. But one of the traits of the godly person is that they get back up again. One of the traits of the fool or the ungodly person is that when they mess up once, they just give up and they lay there. Because it's embarrassing when we, when we hit a stumbling block and we fall down. But I want to tell you, the, the safest thing for your pride you fall down didn't work out, and so I'm just standing here. If I stay back, but I'm back up my feet. If I don't back to my feet, I will stumble again, and so I don't have to worry about looking like a fool again. So I'm going to lay here. This is how some people choose to live their life. They just stumbled once and they lay down and they give up and they do whatever comes away. Don't take any more risk. But what Proverbs says is the godly man is the person who gets up with a recognition that I'm going to have my pride and my ego damaged again. That by standing up and taking risks again, then that means I'm going to run into obstacles and I'm going to trip and other people are going to see me fall, but I'm going to get back up again because the calling that I've been given and the opportunity that I have is worth making a mistake and looking like a fool, but I will never become the fool because I will always get back up and back to what God called me to. 
To be a follower of Christ is to be someone who understands all have fallen, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so I'm going to sin. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to do it the wrong way, but I'm going to get back up on my feet and I'm going to pursue this calling that I have from God. And that's the difference between the fool and the wise man. That's the difference between the person who, who says that there is no God and the person who lives a godly life. It's not perfection. One of them doesn't have it all together, but one just says, I won't give up and I don't have to be perfect. When scripture says all have sinned, I want this to be embedded in our mind. The word sin is an archery term and it means to miss the bullseye. All of us have fallen short like an arrow that doesn't reach the target. But that doesn't mean we stop trying to hit the target. We continue to pursue this calling that God has given us. So we don't don't give up. We don't just say, well, I made a mistake and I'll just, I'll just live that way. No, we look at the mistakes we made, we learn from them and we continue to pursue our calling. And, and Rehoboam was someone who would not learn, would not change, and it led to his death. And that's one of the kings that we see in scripture. One of the other kings that we see in the kingdom is Asa. And he is someone that you could learn from. He was one of the kings amongst these ungodly kings that he was described as having the same heart as David, which made God rejoice. Like this is someone who had a passion and a heart for worship and a passion to to remove the idols and the destructive practices from from God's nation, from Judah. I want to explain it this way. Um, Asa was so committed to the Lord that his grandmother began to set up Asherah poles and, and idols of worship. And he was like, Yaya, Mima, Granny, Abuelo, Buveshka, like whatever term it is that you, you use, called her and said, I'm going to need you to pack up your office. I mean, you've been serving as queen in the palace, but you're fired. It's done. You're out. I mean, it takes a lot, I think, to, to go to your grandmother and be like, hey, your role in the palace, you're out now because you're, you're praising these, these idols. I mean, Asa went throughout the kingdom and he cleansed and he, and he removed these things from the nation. And God took notice. And he couldn't remove all of the practices. And there's actually more that he should have done. But I think it's worth noting. It's worth noting that he didn't do everything that he should have. But he took steps. And God described him as a good man in Scripture. And so even if you're imperfect in your attempts, God takes notice when you begin to get to work. And it didn't mean that his life was perfect. It didn't mean that all of the situations he was in was easy. He actually found himself in a war that they were losing. They were trapped in their city. And they didn't have a way out. And so in, in verse 18 of 1 Kings 15, Asa, and we'll put this up on the screen, it says that he took all the silver and the gold that was left in the treasuries of the Lord's temple and in his own palace. So he took all of the nation's wealth that he had and all of his wealth, and he entrusted it to officials and sent them to Ben-Hadid, son of Taberman, the son of Hezion, the king of Aram, who was ruling in Damascus. And he sent that to make a treaty with them that they would be on their side and that that would then end the fight between him and Israel so that they would be able to get out and get food and be relieved of the war that they were in. And he made this decision to do this. And there's a couple things that really stood out to me in that section of scripture that he did that, that I think we can apply to the way that we live our life 
is this, first of all, this willingness to take action. Because if you're ever in a circumstance where you're trapped in and you feel like your people can't get out to get food and there's some wealth left in, in the treasury and in your palace, a lot of people would look at this and say, you know what? This doesn't look good. I need to get out and I need to get mine and I need to take care of myself. And he could have grabbed that gold and make his way out to Egypt and just lived his life over there. But he said, you know what? Last ditch effort for what I'm supposed to do here. I'm just going to try something. It's risky, but I'm going to try something. It reminds me of Exodus 14 when God was leading the Israelites out of Egypt and they're up against the Red Sea and Egypt, the warriors of Egypt are coming towards them and Moses is crying out to God. It's a really funny passage in Exodus 14 because God says, why are you crying to me? Tell the Israelites to go. God's like, why are you talking to me about it right now? You have instructions like go and do what you can do. Go do what you've been called to do. And there is a time for quiet and prayer and waiting, but there is also a time for action. And far too often we sit around and wait for God to part a Red Sea in our life when God has said, I've called you to go to it, put your hand over it, take the action, and then the miracle comes. Then the door opens when you start moving, staying here and just crying to me about it is not the way that you see results. And this willingness to take action that he had in the face of what seemed like sure defeat, And so things feel hopeless, things feel difficult, take action, get moving, take a faith-filled risk and expect God to show up in the the risk that you take. It's one of the things that I think we can learn from him, a willingness to take action. One of the second things we can learn is that he entrusted responsibility to people. When you're losing a war, for you to clear out your treasure room and then hand it to someone and say, Hurry and get this to the other king. Otherwise, we'll be all dead. Someone who can kind of do the math quick in their head says, okay, I have a whole bunch of wealth. And if I take a long time, you'll all be dead. So I may as well keep this. I mean, I don't know if Asa had any hesitation in saying, here's all the wealth of our city. Go and make a treaty. I don't know if there's any hesitation, but I'm suspicious of people enough to be like, I really, really, really want to trust this person. And especially if you've ever been betrayed or hurt by someone, it's really easy to put up walls and not trust people anymore. And whether you're a leader in a business place or an organization or just a leader within your family, I know it can be difficult to trust people again when you've been hurt. But one of the commendable things about Asa was his willingness to take risks with people. When you look at the way that Jesus built the church, he entrusted, he said, I'm gonna build the church on this kind of faith. He said that to Peter and Peter was the one who denied him three times when Jesus was going to the cross. Angels in heaven surely had to be like, isn't there anybody better than Peter? Jesus isn't even dead yet on the cross and Peter is denying him. We have to be a people who takes risks on people, who trusts people, who enables people to take steps forward. And the the third thing that I like about Asa as we read this section is that he asked for outside help. He was in a fight that he couldn't win on his own. And he asked for outside help, even though it came at a cost. 
came at a financial cost. Men especially, we struggle with, if our marriage is an unhealthy place, the willingness to go to counseling. Well, we should just fix it ourselves. It's going to cost money if we go to counseling. Look, you've been breaking it yourself, if that's where you are. And the risk-reward of getting outside help and paying for the cost of getting outside help, help, it's worth it. It's one of those things that, like I said at the beginning, decision set direction. When you make a decision to do something to repair your marriage, it's going to set a new direction for your marriage. You can't keep doing the old things and expect that it's going to change your direction. If you've been trapped up and you've fallen back into an addiction, you need to make decisions that are going to set your direction. If you want to get healthier and you want to get in shape, you have to make decisions that set your direction. It's not just, oh, you know, it's not going to change the scale that much if I go outside of my eating program. Look, every decision is setting direction for your life. And the more that you take these small opportunities and grab a hold of them to use them to set you in the direction you know that your marriage, your life, your health need to go in, the stronger that you're going to get. And Asa, he, he in this, these situations, he, he did some really healthy things. Band, if you guys would make your way up, I'm going to begin to close this out. And some of them, our logic would say, it would be better to just take care of yourself. But I want to tell you, when, when you stay committed to your calling, to your purpose, when you stay committed to your heavenly father, it's going to take, call you to take steps that sometimes don't seem logical to you or to other people. But what you're working towards matters enough that it's worth the risk. At the beginning of the school year, uh, I, I was asked to help volunteer at one of the local elementary schools. And I was helping in, a, in kindergarten classes. And one of the first things that astounded me was like, as I'm there, I'm like, there's too much here for me to do that you want me to do. And I have no clue how you ever teacher would have survived this day without multiple volunteers. Like what you're doing is you're being asked to do too much. I understand how at the end of your day, you would look at these 25 children who were not yours and be like, all right, the bell rang. I get to clock out and leave. Little Sally, I don't care if your parents aren't here yet. I'm done. I'm overstimulated. I'm out. See you later. Like I understand how you could have that mentality. And, and so it, it reminded me um, about a year or so ago, my mom sent me a box of stuff because my mom is one of those moms who throws away nothing. And she sent me this box from the 1980s of my friend's birthday invitations and like my report cards from elementary school. And in it was my kindergarten report cards. Yeah, I mean, like she kept those. But it was interesting to me. And, and I only remember, I think, one of my teachers from kindergarten through 12th grade's name. Her name was Mrs. Wingo and she was my kindergarten teacher. And I was really surprised because I have really sweet memories of her, but my first quarter report card from her was Paul is disruptive in class. <laughs> I thought we were buds. <laughs> He's behind the other students. I was like, man, I didn't realize that was a problem for her. And then her next sentence was, I would like him to stay after class so that I can work with him more. And my initial reaction is that when a kid is disruptive in class, you want to just smack him in the back of the head. Not, I want to stay extra and spend more time with him. I also want to make note 
though my family would occasionally attend Episcopalian church, like somehow when I was in kindergarten, I ended up at Naples Christian Academy. And that was the only year that I was there. But Mrs. Wingo was a follower of Christ. And so she said, the one who's causing the issue needs more from me, not just correction from me. So she kept me after class that first, that second quarter. And then my next report card was everything that I remembered about her. Paul is a delight to have in class. He's on pace with his students. He's a sweet young man. I didn't change me there. But someone looked and said, though he doesn't deserve it, I'm going to pour into him. And I want to reaffirm to you what I, I believe the Spirit of God would scream out to your mind and your heart that you have a purpose and that you have influence and that you have leadership and you have a calling. And if you've fallen down or you've messed it up before, you need to get back up and get back after it because you have a blessing that's supposed to flow from your heavenly Father through you to other people. And you never know how far God is going to take someone. Something small like learning your alphabet and your numbers. Love that she poured in is part of the foundation of who I am. And I know the love that you pour out is going to be part of the foundation of someone else. Because this is the church of Jesus Christ in this city. So let's expect that he's going to build a kingdom that's not like Solomon's kingdom, but a kingdom that is like that of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, in the face of a nation that divided and experienced destructive leadership and strong leadership, we pray that the leadership that flows through your church would be one of restoration and love and hope. And I pray for anyone in here who feels like they've been in a fallen down state, that you would give them the courage and the strength to stand back up because the calling that you've placed in their life is so important. And the blessing that moves through your people is needed in the city. So may it start with us. We thank you for this opportunity and calling we have in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing?